It was the most peculiar surrender the Qing Empire had ever known. The year is 1810, and 17 women sit patiently in the office of the Viceroy. Some are knitting. At their feet, small children play quietly, hiding under their skirts. A frail, aged woman steps forward and slowly makes her way towards the Viceroy, bent double, hardly able to move. How strange, thinks the Viceroy. Is this harmless old lady really Cheng Yi Sao, scourge of the South China Sea, commander of the Red Flag Fleet, a pirate admiral with 24 ships and 14,000 men under her personal command? Has this woman really built an empire so vast it drew ire not only of the Chinese emperor, but the British and Portuguese? It was a cunning ruse. Mrs. Cheng, as she's best known today, wanted to appear harmless and weak as she negotiated with the king authorities. The better to hide the power she exercised as one of the most successful and fierce pirates of all time. The gambit paid off brilliantly. Turning the Viceroy's sexist presumptions against him, she negotiated a so-called surrender that allowed her to keep most of her fleet intact and avoid persecution. While most male pirate kings died young and violent deaths, killed at sea or executed by the state, Mrs. Chang used her formidable wits to secure a peaceful and prosperous retirement. Although they have been written out of history far too often by men, history is full of formidable female leaders. From empresses to entrepreneurs, scientists to, yes, pirate queens. Celebrating pioneering female leaders, this episode of Founding Conversation stars Baroness Helena Morrissey and Elif Akdug. Baroness Morrissey was CEO of Newton Investment Management for 15 years and is the founder of the 30% Club, a campaign for more gender-balanced boards. She's the author of the book Style and Substance and A Good Time to Be a Girl. She joined us in conversation with Elif Akdug, the first female managing partner of the Bigta Group and one of the founders of the Bigta Women's Network. Elif holds the Best Female Fund Manager 2020 Award from Hedge Fund Review and prior to joining Bigta, was a managing director in Goldman Sachs, London. Helena, could you please tell us about your early career and the impact that has had in your subsequent professional uh, and personal life? particularly the time when you moved from the U.S. to the U.K. and then where you sensed the shift in culture. Well, thanks, Elif, and it's a great pleasure to be here today. Thank you for having me on. Um, so I started my career in a quite a dramatic way. I joined the city in uh, October 1987, pretty much coincident with the stock market crash of that month. And very soon after, I was invited to go off to New York to train for two years. Um, it was the time of Wall Street, the movie, the first version, the kind of greed is good mantra. And I was very influenced myself by Sigourney Weaver in Working Girl, showing my age here. But anyway, at that time, the New York office, this was at Schroeder's, was quite small. And um, there were two men and two women running the office. And so I had this sense that it was quite egalitarian. When I came back to London, I actually found myself the only woman in a team of 16. By now, I was a bomb farm manager and soon after, I had my first child. And when I came back from maternity leave, I was eligible for the first promotion. 
not supposed to be a big deal. This was first rung on the ladder and I didn't get it. And my boss said, you know, it's not that there's any problem with your performance, but there is some doubt over your commitment with the baby. Now, no one would say that now, but in some ways I'm grateful that they did because I knew where I stood and culturally I had to make, you know, a decision. Was I ever going to be able to thrive in that environment where it was very traditional, very hierarchical and very male dominated at the time? Sure, this is very different now, I hasten to add. Or did I have to go in search of a different uh, type of environment? Uh, And that's what I did. It's funny, I had a little bit the opposite um, experience because when I started as an analyst at Goldman, everything was very much structured and there were promotions. It was just meritocratic. I found it really difficult a little bit later on when it became so much more political and you had to go and be more self-promotional. And that really did not come naturally to me. But I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to talk about that uh, and how you how you manage these situations uh, in a while. If we come back to sort of your decision to enter the corporate finance world, you know, how did you adjust and excel in you know, this male-dominated environment that, that you describe? And I know this is often asked, but I think it's a very uh, useful and, and powerful question. You know, what would you say to your younger self today and to young women who are looking to enter corporate finance? So I think, to be honest, that first experience that I've outlined was incredibly important in terms of making me realize that I needed to take some sort of control of my own destiny for my career. I guess I did uh, try to learn from that. I did realize that actually just working really hard, working the longest hours of anybody on the team just wasn't necessarily going to get me a promotion or get me further on in my career. But I was very fortunate and I had a another boss, another man at my next firm, Newton, uh, Stuart Newton, who'd founded the firm, who effectively became a great mentor. And he really showed me that actually it was being a little bit different from the rest of the team, even if that was only just because I was a working mother at the time. That was what he prized. He wanted a team that was made up of different experiences. You know, I'd gone to state school. I hadn't gone to private school. I knew nobody who worked in the city until I joined. So he just uh, really made me believe that that was valuable. And it's a lesson that I've taken, you know, very much to heart and encourage other women who might be struggling to recognize that actually there will be a place where you can thrive, but you do need to have allies. You do need to get to a point where you're not trying to suppress what's great and different about you but you're actually encouraged to bring that difference to work. In fact, my career only started to take off when I stopped trying to fit in and I just played into you know, what was different and, and what, what I could offer. It wasn't necessarily difference, but just what my strengths were. I'm so glad you mentioned allies because it's also sort of the realization that uh, we've had at, uh, at Peak Day and uh, we're working very hard to promote a culture of, of mentorship, of course, but sponsorship in particular targeted that uh, towards, uh, towards women. What are the effective tools that you've come across? You've mentioned sponsorship. Um, is there anything else that is really efficient today and effective at promoting diverse talent? And how can we get these conversations going early on in people's careers? Well, yes, there, there are a lot of um, interventions that, that have succeeded and, and can succeed more if they're done at scale. Um, in fact, the diversity project, which I chair, and it's trying to improve diversity in all dimensions in the investment and savings industry. We produced a document last year called Gender Balance by Design. And what we did was we compiled somewhere between 30 and 40 case studies where an intervention at one firm or another had worked. And some of them are very practical. So like Aviva, for example, introducing equal parental pay. So not just allowing men to sort of take some time off, but making sure that the financial treatment was equivalent has had an amazing impact on the sort of equalizing perceptions about men and women who might be having a family. 
There are other things, for example, I've mentioned already mentoring and sponsorship that are very valuable. We've also seen firms that recognise that they have a cultural problem. There might be a very big call to action from the top of the firm. The CEO might be entirely committed. You've got people coming into the firm who expect equality, but there needs to be a focus on how do you make line management more inclusive, really more genuine about this rather than saying, yeah, sure, yeah, we'll have more diversity and then doing nothing about it and managing people in a, in a bit more exclusive type of a way still. So I would, I would recommend people have a little look at that. It's quite a compilation. If, if a firm did everything, and this is not about fixing the women, can I just emphasize that? This is not about fixing the women. It's about making sure that a firm is genuinely, for example, over recruitment, not just saying, oh, we'd love to have more women apply, but actually make sure that the process around applying, how you are interviewed, that it's empathetic to what might appeal to a woman, um, that addresses what we might want out of a company uh, that we might be looking to join, rather than just sort of, okay, yes, we want more women. Here's the same process that we've applied for many years to attracting men successfully. Did you know the Roman Empire, the epitome of masculine strength and virtue, was sometimes ruled by women? Irene of Athens became Empress of the Eastern Roman Empire in 797, after putting down revolts that attempted to put her son Constantine on the throne. But on Christmas Day in the year 800, Pope Leo III claimed that a woman could not rule the Roman Empire, and used this absurd excuse to declare his favored candidate, the Lombard King Charlemagne, the true Emperor of Rome. Irene was by no means the last leader to be denounced and denied power simply as a result of her sex. Your husband has played a key role um, in allowing you to devote yourself to your career in a way that might not have been possible in a more traditional family format, as he chose to uh, be a stay-at-home dad. This is, of course, not the only model, and there are, you know, a lot of uh, um, families in which both spouses work, etc. And I have to say, I myself have benefited uh, similarly from, uh, you know, being blessed with a husband that never put his career before before mine. But what struck me when I was reading your book, it's not just that he was um, happy to be a stay-at-home dad. He was also a very important strategic thought partner for you and uh, an ally in terms of uh, allowing you to uh, put things in perspective. You know, within the new generation, do you think that younger men in that environment are willing to do what our husbands did for us? I think increasingly so. Um, But I also think that there is, and some of the younger women who approached me to talk about their careers and some of the men who I work with and things like the Diversity Project, they seem to be more interested in men as well as women in balance of some sort. And, and perhaps that's been reinforced by the pandemic as well. It's opened their eyes a little bit. You know, I've had men tell me, you know, in 10, 15 years, I never had family dinners during the week. Um, I was always at the office or traveling. Suddenly, actually, I enjoyed that. And I realized that perhaps I've been not hiding in the office, but, you know, just not playing a, a full part in family life. And so I, I genuinely think, I mean, uh, as you say, We've been very lucky. Our husbands have helped us and been very supportive and and perhaps um, to the extent that they have diminished their own career aspirations. But most men, I think, do want a career and that's all fine. It's just how we share, how I think we'll get gender equality at work once we have more gender equality in the home. And And I do see a lot of signs, 
to say that that is starting to happen. My husband went from being the only man at the school gates to one of quite a few. And uh, that was before the pandemic struck when obviously there were no school gates uh, for a while. But, you know, that's quite an interesting opportunity, I think, for us to make real, much faster progress than we have been making to date. And is our education sort of uh, fit to to play that that role? Because as you were saying, you know, the idea is the same way. It's not we stop trying to fix the women and tell them to act like men. And uh, we sort of try to explain to everybody, men and women equally, that we need to have a different definition of what the best people look like. Similarly, in our educational values, I suppose it's really the, the boys that we need to get on board so that they uh, are, are ready to give to uh, to girls, you know, the, the role that uh, uh, that they deserve in, in the corporate place. And again, shift the definition of what uh, success looks like, both in, a, in its feminine and, and masculine version um, equally. A fascinating topic. So just to move on maybe to uh, uh, another topic and this sort of uh, certain duality that uh, women, especially those uh, in leadership positions like yourself, need to navigate to, to be in, in business. And we have to be at the same time you know, powerful but empathetic. We need to be strong yet human, caring but ruthless, executors, etc., etc. How do we solve this um, Goldilocks dilemma for women and how have you navigated the tension between these different feminine archetypes? Uh, how have you come up with your own style of being a powerful woman in the workplace? So I think one of the things that is difficult is when we start to theorize about it and we sort of end up trying to walk this tightrope as you identify and you know it also ex extends to appearance or how we speak you know are we too shrill or too assertive or too quiet or too you know if you go if you think about it then you could really tie yourself in knots and never do anything really so I I would encourage people and for me it's been a question of you know actually theorizing less about it and just doing it and doing it in a way that does feel authentic obviously it doesn't always appeal to everybody I've been in situations where people have said quite crossly oh you're not like a you know, a city boss, you know, I wouldn't have expected this, you, you know, you're, you're, you're lead in a different sort of way. And I say, well, you know, I think it's important that I lead as I am, there's more than one type of leadership style that is successful. And I think you see that in every walk of life now, um, politics, where I have a sort of foot in the door from being in the House of Lords, very different types of people can lead. And I do want to encourage people to recognize that actually, that's big part of, you know, this authentic self, you know, it's not a question of actually being authentic and then suddenly adopting the male trappings of power once you get to the top. It's really vital at that stage that you use your influence and power that you have when you didn't have it at the start to really try and set a new sort of normality about being feminine. For example, for me, it partly also came with, you know, actually choosing to wear dresses rather than always wearing a trouser suit. Now I wear trouser suits because I want to, you know, sometimes. But there was a time when I felt I needed to, to fit in again. So I just, I know this, it's hard to get that confidence. Uh, it doesn't come overnight, but take small steps outside your comfort zone. Try out actually behaving as you really feel you should be behaving and want to behave. And you might be surprised, people might uh, respond very positively. That's so true. And this is why I have to tell this story, because it's it's really about um, role modeling as well. I was in New York during 9-11 um, in a Goldman building that's uh, very close to the Twin Towers. And as we had to evacuate, you know, there was this image in my head of a senior woman on, on the trading floor. And she was wearing this sort of red suit with a 
Diamond Riviera, at least that's how I remember it. And so she climbed on the desk and she was directing orders for people to evacuate, you know, in her glamorous dress and uh, and jewelry. And that's sort of where sort of the, the image of, uh, of leadership changed. How do we get women to bring the diversity of, of their voice to the table? There's two things I would suggest. One is that I think a great chair or if of the of the committee or board or whatever it is, or a great manager of a team needs to work extremely hard at bringing out different opinions. The best training I ever took was about inclusive chairing of meetings. And I realized that actually, although I thought I was chairing inclusively, I really wasn't. Often we'd come into the room and the loudest people would speak. I would ask for challenge, but again, it would be the more confident people that would come forth. Um, it is quite a skill, I think, to draw out the opinions of those who might feel too shy or too embarrassed to, to talk often. And I think that's something that we need to work on. And I also think that there is, going back to this allyship, safety in numbers a little bit. So again, if one of the things about women joining corporate boards, you know, I'd set up 30% club. It's been amazing to see, way exceeded my expectations, how many women have been promoted to corporate boards. But the danger is that they haven't necessarily felt able to change the agenda of what's being discussed. Uh, and again, if there is a bit of safety in numbers, if you're three out of 10, you know, I don't want to use the word gang up, but you know, compare notes, work out a strategy, you know, look upon that as a bit of a puzzle to solve in terms of how you're going to change the agenda. Perhaps you want to have more effort and focus around the talent in the organization, for example, or the culture of the firm, whatever it might be. I think just reach out to some people and form an allegiance and work out a plan. Don't just leave it to lone voices. One of Egypt's most accomplished rulers, expanding trade networks and commissioning hundreds of building projects, Hashabshut was the first woman to assume the full powers associated with the role of pharaoh. But her legacy was erased, her statues were torn down and smashed, and her image was chiseled off walls. As a result, it wasn't until the late 19th century that Egyptologists realized who she was and all she had achieved. No one knows for sure why the pharaohs who succeeded her set about to destroy her reputation. But it has been argued that in conservative Egyptian society, the consequences of recognizing that women could rule just as successfully as men might forever upturn social order. Other potential women might be inspired not to accept their place as sister or mother of the king, but assume the role of leader for themselves. Whatever would the kings of Egypt have made of a podcast like this one, which not only celebrates the legacies of female leadership, but embraces the potential of stories to inspire younger generations. In our quest to sort of you know gather all this uh, of this data and and become more sort of gender intelligent. How do we sort of shift the definition of what the best people look like? Because elephant in the room is often, you know, oh, it's a it's a share of the pie. And if we're sort of establishing quotas, it means there's sort of more for women and less for men, et cetera. And I love this quote you had in your book about sort of uh, uh, British activist Kate Millett who said, you know, it's about changing the recipe. Easier said than done, perhaps. But how, how do we change the recipe and how do we shift the definition of what the best people look like? Well, it, this is like trying to obviously get some leopards to change their spots because 
I think it is it is tricky. I would encourage uh, listeners to read another book, not by myself, but by a guy called Alex Edmonds, who's at London Business School, which is called Grow the Pie. And it is very much along these lines. If we think about it, and this is where they come back to the so-called business case, diversity is interesting. And today, because we are dealing with increasingly complex problems in today's world, and people who are employed will be typically now much more the ones that are doing jobs that algorithms can't do. The connections between people, the innovations that come from diverse groups coming together and thinking, contributing different ideas, that is the real prize. Uh, it does take some persuasion um, to get people to think like that. Um, I perhaps can have time to share just one example. So Andy Haldane, who is chief economist at the Bank of England until recently, wrote this great example. He said, look, you're hiring two, you're hiring somebody for a team. You set them exam questions. Uh, one scores eight out of 10, 10, one scores four. Nearly everybody's recruitment process would hire the person who scores eight out of 10. What if the other candidates got only four right, but got two right that the team itself as it stands can't answer? That candidate is the one that brings something special, new, might be harder to manage, might be quite diverse in lots of other ways than just, you know, this particular idea. But that's where we need to get to. We need to think about what's the value added from bringing somebody into the team, not let's clone ourselves, repeat the formula. If we move to something, you know, a topic that's been uh, prevalent in the in the last two years during COVID and lockdown, you know, I think we're both familiar with the report that uh, McKinsey had about women in the workplace and how sort of uh, work from home has uh, so on one hand, facilitated things for women because suddenly, you know, they could be more multitasking uh, in the same place. But on the other hand, it sort of blurred the boundaries of what's personal, what's professional and, and the working hours and, and whatnot. Do you believe that the work from home structural shift that we're seeing, is that a, a positive for the advancement of, uh, of women in the workplace or, or is it a negative? So I, I do think it, it can be a big positive, but we need to make sure, I talked to somebody the other day who said that, you know, in his business, all the women were still now at home and all the men had come back into the office. That is the, the risk. We need both men and women to be adopting what I would describe as more modern ways of working that allow both to have a bit more balance in their lives, to do work more efficiently, to be honest, because of course, although I'm a great fan of collaboration in the office and don't believe in working from home full time, um, except for when we have to in lockdowns, clearly we miss something when we're not all together. But at the same time, we know, we've all seen that we can write a speech, write a report, do some really sort of deep work that sometimes needs a lot of concentration when we're at home. So I do think we need to take this moment to, uh, yeah, seize the moment to say, actually, now this has thrown up. We always knew we should be using technology better, we knew that we shouldn't be commuting long distances to the same fixed office every day. We've got expensive real estate that is unnecessary. Let's think of a smarter way forward, but don't let's just make it that the women end up the ones at home, because that would be unfortunate. Especially when when we remind ourselves that networking is, is typically you know, something that's less natural for, for women than, you know, if all the men are in the office networking and women are at home with a screen, then that's not very helpful and conducive to uh, uh, to becoming a little bit more visible. And I suppose the other issue is, uh, you know, we're talking about one's voice being heard. It's always so much more difficult in a virtual environment to, you know, establish your presence and, and be heard. So I suppose those are other things to um, to bear in mind. 
we're coming to the end of, of our time. And just as, as parting remarks, you know, I was um, wondering, you know, if you look back at your career so far, um, what are the, the tips that you would uh, recommend women have in mind to, to achieve their, their goals? What are the, the do's and don'ts? Speak up, be clear about um, what's happening and signal your ambition. Strategize finally about your career. Don't be like I was early on, head down, work really hard, someone will tap me on the shoulder and promote me or offer me a great opportunity. That won't happen necessarily. And I think women can often go quite a long way down that track before they might be, you know, we worry about being too pushy or too assertive. Don't, again, push that a little bit to one side and try to enjoy it. What is the one thing that you feel is out there preventing women from, from reaching their, their goals and that we should really try to, to avoid? So I should have mentioned it already, but now is my chance. So we have this terrible pressure to be everything, to have it all, to be superwoman. I get described that a lot. People say all the, all the children, the job titles, etc. I regret not having made it clearer that there were times when I was certainly not superwoman and I was definitely struggling. I do think that perception means that women sometimes feel they're failing when actually they're just being fine. You know, they're, they're not giving themselves the credit where it's due. So I know this sounds like which I'm talking about fixing the women. I'm not really. It's a societal thing. But I'm just saying, bear in mind that it's natural to go through ebbing and flowing. Don't be um, in any way discouraged by this idea that if you're not firing on all cylinders all the time and rushing off to, you know, do 10 mile runs as well, you're a failure. You are not. You are great. Go easy on yourself. Thank you, Helena, for being with us. Thank you so much. This episode of Founding Conversations starred Helena Morrissey and Elif Aktug. Helena's book, Style and Substance, is available now from all good bookstores. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This series is brought to you by the Bigda Group, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with the How To Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers for this episode were me, Rosario Lebrija Rasvetayev, Clara Bertrand, and Vasily Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.